Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai, welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, should the election be delayed? As health officials scramble to test and contact trace, can a fair election campaign go ahead? And does an elimination strategy mean we'll be heading into lockdown every time something like this happens? We've seen what can do in Australia and other places and um, I think it's sort of a short-term sacrifice for long-term benefits. Kiwis were remarkably compliant during the first lockdown, but what about this time around? If you can get three-quarters to four-fifths of people doing the social distancing at the moment, I think we've got to take that as a win. We'll begin this morning with the latest numbers from the Ministry of Health. Seven new COVID-19 cases have been confirmed, with six directly linked to the latest cluster and one being investigated. That means there are 56 active cases in New Zealand, with 37 from within the community. The Prime Minister is today deciding whether or not to delay the September 19th election. Jacinda Ardern will announce tomorrow morning whether to push back the date. But would it be safe to push ahead with an election if COVID-19 restrictions are still in place? The Minister of Health, Chris Hipkins, is with us this morning. Morena. Good morning. From a safety perspective, would it be safe to go ahead with the election if there are restrictions in place? Well, that's the number one criteria I think we need to keep in mind when making any decisions around the election. Uh, it's got to be, can everybody go out there and vote and can, will they be safe in voting? That's got to be the number one factor here. So the Electoral Commission have been doing their planning since before the first lockdown. So they have done all their planning for this year's election based on a level two scenario. So they could conduct an election safely with the entire country at level two. So they would have all of the distancing required. They'd run that over a period of several weeks so that everybody had the opportunity to vote so we didn't have huge long queues you know streeting for streets and mm. streets and streets uh, while people waited to line up to vote so they've got that all in hand they're all ready to go for a level two like scenario so that's got to be the key thing that's got to be safe will we have more outbreaks do you think uh, look it's a virus. You can never say never. Obviously, we're doing everything we can to contain this one um, and everything we can to stop there being further mm. outbreaks. One of the things that's puzzling about this is we still don't know how this one uh, you know, emerged. It doesn't appear to have any link to the border um, or to any of the areas where we would expect there to be heightened risk. So um, it is still a puzzle. You say never say never, but how, how likely are future outbreaks if indeed a vaccine is a year or 18 months away? It's a bit like saying, you know, how, how likely is an earthquake? You just don't know, but you have to be prepared for it. So what is our strategy? Are we just going to keep going into various states of lockdown if indeed there are future outbreaks? Look, our strategy is to make sure we do everything we can, can to stop there being an outbreak mm. and where there are outbreaks to contain them. Now, the, this one's a bit of a puzzle because it came out of nowhere um, and, uh, you know, we, we got on top of it very quickly. Um, we had, you know, the, the level three lockdown is certainly helping enormously uh, in that regard. Our contact tracing uh, system is working even better than we expected it to, which is very reassuring. Um, as of this morning, I've got the latest update, there's about 1,500 close contacts that have 
have been identified. About 1,300 of them have been contacted already. Um, and of course, more as more get added, they're being contacted. That system is working mm. very quickly. Um, more than 80% are being contacted within 48 hours, which is the standard that we've set. Um, so it, it is, you know, the contact tracing system is working. The testing is working. We're seeing record levels of testing, which is mm. good and it's reassuring. And the fact that we're not seeing out of that record level of testing any cases outside of this cluster so far, again, that all provides reassurance. I just want some clarity, though, on the elimination strategy, because there are really organised countries, the likes of South Korea and Singapore, that haven't been able to keep COVID-19 out. I mean, these are hardly failed states. What makes you think that New Zealand would be any different? Well, in those states as well, where they have clusters and outbreaks, of course, they're having to put restrictions in place mm. too. Um, other countries are having to do that. So look at Victoria, you know, they're back into quite a long period of level four lockdown so this because is they it, this quick is, enough so, uh, getting on top of the, the next outbreak. So just to be really clear, though, that this is the plan. Every time there is some sort of community transmission or an outbreak, until we have a vaccine, we will have to go into some form of lockdown. Well, if you look at the countries that have tried an alternative approach, and mm. people keep pointing to Sweden, um, 6,000 people died, nearly 6,000 people died in Sweden um, as a result of that strategy. And there's no guarantee that, that, you know, that looks like they could well have a second wave coming. So there's no guarantees from a different strategy either, other than the, the key guarantee, which is that more people would die. So... You know, I think the strategy that we've got in New Zealand is still the right one for us here. Mm. We're still in a very fortunate position. And, and the key thing is, if we do this well, then we can get in and out of lockdown very quickly. And that's the goal here. We want to be out of lockdown as fast as we can, which is why one of the messages to, is to New Zealanders is, please do your part here. Everyone's livelihoods rest on us getting this right and getting out of lockdown as quickly as we can. You've seen the pictures out of Auckland over the last 24 hours or so. Do you think it might be time to make masks compulsory for everyone in public? Oh, look, certainly, if you're going to the beach or you're going to places where other people will be, please wear a mask. Make sure you're staying two metres apart from one mm. another. Um, look, we've never ruled out compulsion around masks. We're dealing with the supply issues, first and foremost. That's our key priority here, making sure that masks are available to everybody. Um, we've been releasing them from the national supply, the national reserve, um, so that we've got to, we know, so that we can get them out there. They're going through churches, Salvation Army, mm. um, you know, uh, food banks and the other groups to make sure that everyone can can get them um, and of course they're available through the supermarkets and we're working with the supermarkets to make sure their supply chains are robust but you know please wear one it doesn't have to be a disposable uh, medical grade mask it can also be a reusable face covering and people are being very inventive and creative um, in those and good on them do that um, if you can't get hold of a, re of a disposable so why one. not make them compulsory if our strategy is hard and fast why not make them compulsory Look, like I've said, um, we're dealing with the supply issues at the moment, making mm. sure everyone can get them, um, and I wouldn't rule that out. Were you using the COVID-19 app to trace all of your movement before this outbreak? Uh, look, to be fair, I've been using them where there's a QR code available. I have not done the, the extra bit of manually adding in my details. But I keep, as a minister, of course, well, because well, as a minister, of course, I have a minute-by-minute minute diary that's kept by other people mm. of what I've been doing. So if I had to do contact tracing, the combination of my use of the QR code and the ministerial diary I have means that I could very quickly identify everyone about, I've been in contact with. What about outside of work? And that's what the app's designed to do. What about outside of work? Uh, outside of work, I've been making sure... 
outside of work I've been making sure that I'm um, you know keeping a record to be, to be fair uh, in the last couple of weeks there hasn't been much time outside of work though no no but before that before this outbreak before the last couple of weeks were you using it to log all of your movement outside of work as well um, to be fair, that, that functionality has only been added in the last few weeks. I keep a diary that, um, you know, my diary mm. records uh, people that I've come into contact with. Um, and so, yes, I still have that. If I had to contact Trace, um, I could do that very quickly. So that's the question we ask every New yeah. Zealander, whether you're using the app or not. If you got contacted, could you identify everyone you've been into contact with in the last two weeks? That's the standard. Everyone's got to be prepared to be able to do that. Do you think, do you think New Zealanders were a little too complacent heading into this outbreak? Um, I think we've relaxed and I think that you know we were we were proud of our success and there's nothing wrong with being proud of our success but mm. the message that you will have heard me say I've been the Minister of Health for seven weeks now every single day that I've been in front of the media the message you will have heard me say is you know our success is no excuse for um, for being complacent we so, can't so afford to be complacent. So why didn't the government go harder before now in pushing the COVID-19 Act? Uh, we have been, um, but you know, like I said, um, we we need New Zealanders to take it up. Now, the good news is the number of users has no, doubled. But before now, um, in well, the exactly. Last so, three so why, days, why did, good. so why why weren't why weren't more people using it before now? It's, why has it taken an outbreak for people to pick this up? I mean, you have had a loud voice in the media. You're able to take out advertisements, all that sort of stuff, and yet we didn't even have the manual logging function until the last couple of weeks. Yeah, so when I became the Minister of Health, that's one of the first things I did was look mm. at the development of the app, fast forward, speed up the, you know, that, that additionality uh, that makes it more usable for people. So we've done those things and we got that done as quickly as we can. There's another update coming at the beginning of September that will again add more functionality, and I've got that underway now. We're moving as quickly as we can. Mm. That, you know, it does take a little bit of time to do the development and testing of, this, uh, of the apps to make sure that we're not downloading something on people's phones that's to, not going to, be, to work. To be totally that, safe. That would really erode confidence in it. To, to be totally safe, why didn't you make the app or some form of sign-in compulsory for all businesses, workplaces, schools, even under Alert Level 1? Well, we didn't need to do that um, because, you know, the, the risk level wouldn't have justified that. Now, obviously, there's a heightened risk level now, uh, and so we, are, we have made it displaying QR codes compulsory. And when you're at Level 3, you need to make sure that people are mm. either scanning a QR code or... Oh, we seem to have a technical problem there. We have lost Health Minister Chris Hipkins. Hopefully that isn't a sign of anything too uh, ominous, but we will see if we can uh, re-establish our line with Minister Chris Hipkins when we'll be back with you on Q&A in a couple of minutes. Hawke Mayanor, welcome back to Q&A. National wants the election moved. The date is currently set for five weeks from now on September 19th, but Judith Collins says the latest COVID-19 outbreak makes that unfeasible. She is with us this morning. Tēnā welcome to Q&A. Good morning, Jack. Why do you want the election moved? Well, I think it's the right and fair thing to do because um, I've just heard Chris Hipkins say, saying that it really only matters if uh, people aren't uh, unsafe. Uh, undertaking election. That's not what he said. That's not what he, he said. said. Sorry to interrupt you. That I actually only asked him about safety. So, so he, he said that the Electoral Commission has plans to operate at an alert level too. I didn't ask him anything um, with regards to democratic fairness. Is, is the democratic fairness your concern? Well, the democratic fairness is uh, absolutely crucial. So, for instance, uh, 
people who are voting should be able to have access to candidates, to policies, to be able to get the sort of scrutiny of those policies. And of course, it's not just about 19th of September. Mm. It's the fact that we have, people should be able to know what the policies are for not just this that day, but for the year after that, the year after that, and the year after that. Okay. There are plenty of opportunities for the government to do this. It's the Prime Minister's call. She'll make that decision apparently tomorrow. So we could be back at level one in a fortnight. That would still give you three and a half weeks to campaign. Is that not enough time to sell your vision? Oh, well, I think um, people might expect that if uh, you'd certainly have more than a week before the polling booths open, because I'm sure you are aware, Jack, that the polling booths open um, around three weeks before the actual date of polling date. So um, I would have thought most people would think something more than a week. You're talking about people who, 1.7 million New Zealanders who are in lockdown at the moment, um, who can't go about their normal business, and they're actually worried about their health and their businesses, not worried about the conservation policy of the Green Party. There's a week before, before uh, between the potential end of the lockdown and uh, early voting beginning. If people don't feel like they are well informed enough to make a vote at that stage, they don't have to make a vote until at least September 19th. I don't understand why three and a half weeks isn't enough for all parties to present their ideas to voters. Well, obviously, Jack, um, if you're ever out on campaigning, you understand that people do actually sometimes they want to go to public meetings. We can't hold public meetings at the moment. People love mm. to come to those. But also, it's even getting out pamphlets to people. So it's not just that, though, Jack, is it? Uh, I've been presented with a list of 71 countries where the voting has actually been delayed because of COVID-19 this year. What is the problem with it being delayed out? We can certainly do it through the Electoral Commission has given us legal advice on that, as they've given the government, but also we would help the government if they wanted to push it out to next year. We have a three-year term. It's not like a five-year term. Mm. It's not like um, we're, we're worried about, um, oh, the government being in there too long. And the other thing is, Jack, what happens if the Prime Minister says we're going ahead on the 19th of September and then two weeks later we're back at level two or level three lockdown? This is, this what is about then? This is about your polling, though, isn't it? I mean, you would not be making this argument to me if you were polling in the high 40s. No, what I'd say to you, Jack, is imagine if uh, it was a national-led government that was saying we're going to charge ahead with an election when we've got the level of anxiety in the public, and particularly with 1.7 million New Zealanders, a third of the country, mm. locked down. Um, I just imagine what what you and many other people would be saying if it was, say, a John Key-led government that was uh, saying that they'd just charge ahead. I'd Not be saying the opposition has three and a half weeks to make their argument. Is it possible to have a 100% secure border? Well, it actually is, and you live in a country like New Zealand. We're well, a very isolated country. If it is, country. Why, does your, why does your health spokesperson, Shane Letty, say it's not possible to have a 100% secure border? What he's looking at is the fact that there is human failure, and clearly right. there is a systemic failure in this case. The fact that... No, no, no. So, so you, you, and your health minister, uh, you and your health spokesperson disagree then. You just said it's possible to have a 100% secure border. He says you, there's always going to be some level of human failure. Well, he's talking about human failure. I'm talking about systemic failure. When we've got the government had one job, and what we're finding is uh, some days later, they still can't tell us how this COVID-19 came into the country. I mean, I heard Chris Hipkins saying, well, you know, they don't know where it came from. Well, Megan Woods, the minister of um, for mm. the border, 
she's told us it's either come from the UK or Australia. So clearly they're at odds. And the fact that they don't, they can't tell us what's happened should be very concerning to every New Zealander. So what certainly would you, concerning to us. What would you be doing differently if you were Prime Minister today? If you were on the ninth floor of the Beehive today, what would you be doing differently right now? Well, right now I'd make sure that uh, I had a system that worked at the border. And okay. I would they also say they've be... done that now. So, so what would you be doing? Give me some specifics. What would they... you be doing differently? They told us they had that before as well. For instance, I think it's a shame Jacinda Ardern kept in place a Minister of Health, who, David Clark, who clearly did not have the authority to do anything or to keep it safe. So that would be one thing. It would okay, not so, have happened. so hindsight's, right today, hindsight's great, yeah. but, but what would you be doing differently well, today? I don't think you can just say hindsight's great. I think it's also important to understand that we were told by Jacinda Ardern and her government, every New Zealander was told that we had beaten it, that 102 days with no COVID transmission in the community. So number one, they I would not be making promises. They also said it was likely promises. to come back. The, 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 the health spokespeople said there was a good, good chance it would come back. I mean, you look at all of the countries where there's been a second wave, the likes of South Korea and Singapore, it, clearly this is a highly infectious virus. I just give me some specifics. What would you do differently if you were Prime Minister today? Today? Well, mm -hmm. for instance, we have a border policy coming out this week that we will not be making promises without being able to deliver on it, which I think will be a comprehensive policy that people will say, well, thank, but, thankfully but someone's thinking about it. But why is that policy not out before now? What do you mean? Why is it not well, out why, before why haven't, now? Why haven't you, I mean, we've, like you just said, we've had 102 days where we've had no community transmission. Why are we still waiting for your border policy? Well, Let's put it this way, Jack. We believed, like five million New Zealanders, when the government said and the Prime Minister said that they had a secure border. It turns out that it took a journalist from a media organisation to be able to uncover it. Mm. But the other thing, too, to have um, a delayed election is that for the we must surely have to have parliamentary scrutiny now. The fact is, is if it wasn't for someone like that particular journalist, we would not know about the massive failures at right. the jet park, for instance. I'm, I'm, again, you haven't given me anything that you would do differently today. Well, I'm going to give you an example. Would you make would you make face masks compulsory in Auckland as of today? If that was the advice that we had from the medical experts, yes. But that would depend on the advice. What you need to understand, Jack, and I'm sure you do, is that we're not getting the information that the government has. We're being told it, like the media, in some cases a couple of minutes beforehand. So it is really important that we would share that information. So the one thing that we would do, mm. which is what we did during the fuel crisis um, uh, issue in 2017 for that election was to keep the gov the opposition fully informed. We would make sure that they had that information. You've been complaining about Shane Rithi not getting not getting debriefed. H has he has he not been briefed sufficiently in the last few days? Well, he's now getting um, quite cursory briefings, but okay. better than he was. And, and okay. the thing is, Jack, it's not about us. It's the fact that we need to be able to. Um, assure New Zealanders, or the government needs to be able to assure New Zealanders, and they need to be able to trust that advice, that when they say I that agree. they've got the borders secure, they have. But clearly, Jack, they can't even tell us where this come from. Trust is very important. We'll get to that in a moment. Do you have confidence in Ashley Bloomfield? Would he stay in that role if you were Prime Minister? Well, of course. Okay. And he's appointed by the um, State Services Commission, not it, by a minister. If you were in charge... Would you continue with this elimination strategy so that in the future, if, heaven forbid, there was another outbreak or outbreaks in New Zealand before we had some sort of vaccine available, we would go into a lockdown? 
Well, I think it's important to have the elimination strategy. We have no chance of any herd immunity in New Zealand, uh, we, but we cannot continue to be in lockdown, yo-yoing, in and out of lockdown. Okay, well, hang on. The, 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 you can't have both. You can't well, you continue can. the elimination strategy, but then not go into lockdown if we have outbreaks. Well, we have far more confidence than, than you do, Jack. And the reason we have confidence is that we will have confidence in our borders, but we'll also have confidence in the contact tracing. We will have confidence that we would have enough masks and, and gloves for our frontline workers, which is something mm. that the government has yet again failed on. So, Jack, we'd have a far more competent system and we would make sure it worked. But you haven't been well, able to articulate anything you would do differently for that far more competent system. Let me ask this. Well, you you well, said that trust is Jack's, important. That's very unfair, isn't it? That's very unfair. Well, I it's don't think not, so. I've given no, you many is. opportunities to explain no. what you would do differently, and you've said, well, well, months ago we would have done that differently. No, I'm asking you no. what you would do differently today, and you haven't been able to articulate anything no, actually, except to Jack, say that you've got a border policy coming out soon. That's very unfair. What is fair is that we would not promise and then fail to deliver. And that's right. the big issue here. Okay. So we've got a government told us that the COVID-19 tracing app was working. So we they have told to trust us that you. the masks were in place. They told us all these things mm. and they failed. Okay. So we would be able to deliver on what we promised. And so, I think it's so, important, so, Jack, so we are to trust the party that just weeks ago leaked private patient information for people with COVID-19. That is the party we are to trust. That's a ridiculous comment, isn't it, Jack? No, well, I don't think so. You were the one who said that, that trust is important. We did not. The, it was not the party that did that. It was your that. former party president. It was one of your MPs. Oh. And your health spokesperson at the time also had access to that information and used the fact that that information had been leaked to attack the government, even though he knew the source of that information. And, and you're the party with... to trust. Actually, Jack, would you let me answer? I dealt with that issue. So the former party president was a party president for a matter of months, 20 years ago. The uh, person who actually leaked the information is no longer is no longer standing for us and will be gone at this election. And the health spokesman, who I thought should have passed on the information straight away mm. to the Minister of Health, I said that. That's backed up by the hearing okay. report. He's no longer the health Let's spokesman. Let's put that issue to so one side that's then. that's been dealt with. Okay. That is a long way, Jack, from promising to actually put in place um, no, all, the, all the security around the border. But these are the issues of did. trust that you, that you brought up. So do you have evidence that the government knew about community transmission uh, before that transmission was made public? Well, we don't have that evidence. But So why did your deputy repeatedly imply that the government knew more than it was letting on? Well, Jerry Brownlee was simply, and he's, and he's apologised for choosing his words unwisely, he was simply reflecting the level of anxiety and concern in the public. He and I and all of our MPs are receiving a lot of concern for the public. And they also So he had saying, no evidence. Well, hang on. He had no evidence, but he just, only, it's only okay to raise that. Only concern for the public. But then again, uh, what we know is that the government wasn't telling us the truth about the level of security they had at the border or the level of security they had for the staff who are working there. To be told, mm. as we were by Chris Hipkins, that it's a very heavy-handed way to have people being tested uh, for COVID-19 when they're staff, and that implied that staff were refusing. We have staff coming forward now saying they were never asked. Okay. In fact, when they did ask, they would have refused it. So actually, people should ask questions. and. One of the reasons to have parliamentary scrutiny is so mm. that those questions can be asked 
and answered. On Tuesday night, how long before the Prime Minister's press conference were you briefed about the COVID-19 outbreak? I was briefed at uh, quarter to nine by the Prime Minister. And mm. that was another thing too, Jack, is that I had um, all sorts of allegations made against me by members of the Labour Party um, that I must what have known earlier. Well, you know very well, otherwise why would you be asking me? I'm just you interested, you were well. the one who said that you didn't have information soon enough. Well, who, did well, you, who, did you, who did you tell after you were told? I told my de deputy, Jerry Brownlee, uh, just before the press conference, because he wasn't available when I first called him. And that was the person I should be calling. But also, that no was just else. before. No one else. Why are you asking me that, I'm, Jack? I'm just interested to know. Well, ask me. Uh, uh, can you just tell me why? Because you, you I can were the tell one, you. You were the one, no, you were the one no, complaining the one about not having it. information. I, I'm just interested to know who you would tell. Again, it's an issue of trust, isn't it? You want to I, be trusted with this information. I'm just interested to, no, to Jack, know who you I think, I think, Jack, that you are actually um, doing exactly what you've accused Jerry Brownlee of doing. I'm just asking questions. After yeah. all, uh, <laughs> these are the concerns that the public has. Thank you very much for your time. We've got to keep moving. National Leader Judith Collins, I'm sure we will speak again very soon. All right. Um, do you think the election should be delayed? Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post on Facebook. Email us at Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. The panel is coming up shortly, but we'll be back with Health Minister Chris Hipkins after the break. Kia ora te whana. Welcome back to Q&A. Minister of Health Chris Hipkins, I think, is back with us. Morena, Minister, can you hear me again? Good morning again. Yes, I can hear you fine. OK, I, I want to pick up on uh, something Judith Collins just referenced. Of course, large numbers of Auckland border staff, it has been revealed, had never been tested for COVID-19 before this current outbreak. You have accepted responsibility for this, but I want to know why was it not compulsory for those front-facing border staff to be tested? Look, it is compulsory now and it has been for the last 48 hours and we're working our way through that. Um, obviously, you know, uh, we were under the impression that more testing was happening uh, than has been happening. Uh, that was the information that but we why had. Why did you not obviously, make it I'm compulsory? concerned about that too. It hasn't it hasn't happened as quickly as it should have happened, and I'll accept responsibility for that. Though, of course, you know, I, you know, the, the people on the front lines are the ones who do that testing. Mm. I don't get out there with my cotton buds myself. No, no, um, that, but, that doesn't answer know, it though. It, it Why was it not compulsory? Um, it is compulsory now. I know and, it is now. Uh, Why was it not before the problem? Uh, look, the decision was made at the time not to make it compulsory when we moved from to you know from to level one in the first place, um, and you know we can spend a lot of time looking Why? backwards about Why that, whether was that it was not the compulsory. right decision or the wrong decision. Uh, well, look, like I said, I'm focused on moving forward. Here. I know you it's are, but now, I know you, I know you are. But, on fixing that. But but yeah, as 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 Judith Collins just said, you know, trust and competency are two central issues when it comes to dealing with COVID-19. And to have faith in your processes going forward, we need to see what's gone wrong in the past. So please tell me, why was it not compulsory beforehand? Well, just let me challenge you on the, the notion that something's gone wrong here. Testing at the border is a backstop. The primary measures that we put in place to keep people safe at the border, all of the protective equipment that uh, is put in place there, the protective gear that people wear as people are coming across Minister, the border, please that's the first line of defence. Why, why was and it we, not compulsory? There is no... 
there is no evidence whatsoever that this uh, latest outbreak is a, re is a reflection or is <laughs> a result why, of why a failure of the Why are you not answer this question? This is a very reasonable question. Why, why was it not compulsory? Given, given our vulnerabilities to COVID-19, I would have thought, um, given we had eliminated it for the best part of three months, our border was the single biggest vulnerability. People arriving and those staff members interacting with people who are arriving at our borders. It seems extraordinary, given you were prepared to shut down the country, that you wouldn't compel all of those staff members to be tested. Yeah, well, look, Jack, you will note that one of the first things I did when I became the Minister of Health, um, and I'm on record of this, is talk about the need to increase testing. I've mm. um, set out some very clear expectations about people at the border being tested, um, and I've been working very hard over the last six weeks or so to make that happen. It has not happened with the speed that I've wanted it to happen. Um, and ultimately, I've used the, the, the last available lever to me, which is to make it compulsory, and I signed the order on that last week. What, what assurances did you seek as Minister before this outbreak, I, I know you, you might have you might have asked whether or not people were being tested. Did you did you seek explicit numbers as to those staff members being tested? Uh, yes, I did. And one of the things that makes that challenging, of course, is that they're not all tested at work. Some of them will go. And so, be were you satisfied with those numbers? So they'll though? be tested at their GPs. No, I wasn't. And of course, I've been you know, pushing that. And you will have heard me. I've been very open right. about the fact that I've not been happy with those numbers. Um, and I've been, you know, I've been very, op uh, very openly answering public mm. questions about the fact that we've still got work to do to get those numbers up. Okay. Um, and I've been working on that in the, you know, for, for the entire time I've been the Minister of Health. Uh, you know, again, we keep on coming back to this to the central word trust. And last week, health officials said, quote, regular te tests were happening for border workers. The Prime Minister said tests have been happening for staff at the border, quote, all the way through. If we go back to June, your own government's um, testing regime said it would include, quote, regular asymptomatic testing for all border-facing workers. That was on June 23rd, two months ago. From this point forth, given your testing hasn't clearly been in line with your public statements, why should the public trust you on this issue? Well, what we do have now is a daily update of the, you know, a breakdown of the number of tests and where they're being taken. Mm. Uh, and we are now separating out through the coding. The system has been changed so that we're coding border staff separately from the general public so that we can actually have a very clear line of sight. Um, now, that, that was something, as you'll recall, that I asked for as soon as I became the Minister of Health. It's taken a while for them to develop that system. That system is now working. And I'm now getting a daily update of exactly who's being tested, where they're being tested, and what the results of those tests are. Health Minister Chris Hipkins, Tenakwe, thank you for your time. All right, we've been here before, lockdown life, rethinking our work, school and future plans. Kiwis were notably compliant when we went into lockdown in March. Now we're at level three in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland and level two around the rest of Aotearoa. So will compliance be different this time around? Fina Owen asked the experts. And here we go again, New Zealand, back on the lockdown levels. Remember last time? In February, March, we worked together. There was a general consensus to go early and go hard. And Kiwis said, yeah, this is not going to be good, but we can do it. Otago University psychiatrist, Dr Chris Gale. We're now in August. We all know people who have lost their jobs. Kiwis are normally fairly good at doing something that they agree to if they can see the reason. However, this time round, people are a little bit more cynical. They are, they've still got 
a certain sense of fatigue and a certain and a certain higher level of stress than they had in February. What does this mean? Dr Gale says it's unrealistic for the government to expect 95% compliance with lockdown regulations this time round. If you can get three quarters to four fifths of people doing the social distancing at the moment, I think we've got to take that as a win. In the past four months, New Zealanders have also witnessed Northern Hemisphere resistance to long lockdowns. Conspiracy expert Dr M Dentith from Waikato University. Some people are also going, we don't want to go through that kind of thing, which is also leading to a certain kind of resistance towards a lockdown. And that's putting aside the conspiracy theories that claim that this lockdown has been manufactured by the government some malign purpose. Are we going to allow them to lock us down and destroy our rights and freedoms? No! No, we're not. This was an anti-lockdown rally a few days ago in Whangarei. New Zealand Public Party leader Billy Tukahika Jr. is leading a resistance movement against lockdown and promotes various conspiracy theories. So he's not being insincere when he promotes these conspiracy theories. He believes them. And he is attracting a wide church of people. Extremely concerned about the lockdown, the validity of the lockdown. And the Outdoors Party has had its own smaller anti-lockdown protests. Like other resistors, they will not wear masks. Say no! Say no to this! What we've got today is checkpoints here at Bombay. This lockdown, police are more visible and they're taking a gentle approach. Unlike Victoria, face masks here are not mandatory, just strongly advised. In Dunedin, Dr Gale is worried about other human responses to COVID-19, a delayed reaction to the stress it has caused. And the emotional consequences and the fatigue and exhaustion hit and that's when marriages start falling over that's when people start hitting substances that's when the booze intake goes up that's when people get anxious that's when people get depressed so that's delayed and unfortunately this second community transmission is hitting us just as that is rolling in The majority of New Zealanders are working with the official COVID kaupapa. The Health Ministry reports that in the two days since this last week's lockdown announcement, 388,000 people signed up for the tracing app. Fina Owen reporting there. Let's bring in our panel now. Sadly, they can't join me in person because of the Level 3 restrictions. Ifesel Collins is an Auckland councillor and Fran O'Sullivan is NZME's Head of Business. Kia ora kōrua. Thank you for being with us this morning. I want to start with this election date issue. The Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern will be considering whether or not to move the September 19th election. She's going to make that announcement tomorrow morning. Ifesel, I'll begin with you. Do you think the Prime Minister should move the election? Yeah, I think we can go with the election at, at its current date, although my sense is the Prime Minister will announce a, a November election at least. I think she's going to push it out because there's probably been quite a bit of media coverage and pressure for her to move it out, give people a sense that the uh, politicians have the ability to campaign and to get policy out. But, you know, the Chief Electoral Office is going to make the final decision on this, but I think it's really important that people know that you can still have the elections under level two. If we're at a level two, I think the chief mm. electoral office has said there's ways to make this happen. But my sense is we're looking at a November election. 
Fran, what do you think? Well, you know, there's obviously it's in the Prime Minister's political interest to have it as soon as possible on September 19. But there is a case in point in giving fairness for everybody to campaign. Um, but also what I'm really most interested in is hearing who's got a plan for the future. In some ways, I regard this outbreak as quite fortuitous in that it's happened this side of the election and not immediately after uh, when the Prime Minister would have hosed him, I'm sure. But um, so we can debate uh, what uh, the next scenario should be, what we're actually prepared to accept in terms of lockdowns and border mm. control or, or a different sort of system. But I wouldn't want to see a uh, push it out more than a month. I think that's more than enough time to have that debate. Afisa, how do you rate the government's handling of this latest outbreak? I think they've done the right thing. The challenges as a society, I don't know that we were particularly ready. I think people have found a routine. They've gone back to a particular rhythm because we've all been to level one. And I know in Auckland you had reports of people going off to the beach. So I, I understand that people will be feeling like, oh, here go my freedoms again. But I think we've got to understand that we're at war with this virus and we've got to take the necessary precautions, take the advice so that we can, in fact, get over the top of this. But I think the government have done the right thing. We've heard things from Minister Hipkins, who has said he's taken responsibility. Mm -hmm. But I think there have been some real failures as far as the public service is concerned and whether people uh, at the borders at least have been tested. And I think that's where the failure has been. I, I personally I just think it's quite extraordinary, isn't it, Fran, given, given you know, what we have been through and the collective sacrifices of the so-called team of five million, that people on the front line were not being regularly tested for COVID-19. Uh, I think it's a abysmal and quite shocking failure at government level. I mean, they found out, you know, initially around the borders, people coming through customs, uh, that we weren't getting social distancing. Uh, they put in um, some stringencies around that. We set up the quarantine facilities when people couldn't be trusted to self-isolate in their own rooms, that type of thing. Uh, look, people just don't, don't fall in. Uh, we need compulsion. It's a sad thing to say, but we're fairly laissez-faire. We're fairly complacent as a nation. I think we've let this far get away collectively but it does not let the government off the hook and it does not let dr bloomfield off the hook i'm not in the camp that says they should be fired but i'm in the camp that says gosh we need to straighten up fast and also to look at uh, new forms of electronic tracing all the things that people like taiwan are doing uh, u.s head health people are not going to taiwan for no reason uh, big big official mission there we really need to go to best in class and stop stop being, you know, Dad's army. Afisal, do you feel that complacency has set in a little bit? I mean, you, you look at the, the number of New Zealanders who hadn't even downloaded the COVID-19 app, let alone been using it regularly ahead of this outbreak. Yeah, I think we have we have become a little bit complacent. And it does concern me that there were reports earlier this week that when Auckland went into level three, we had people trying to run off to the batch. What we've got to do is take up these challenges. If it's face coverings, we know as a nation, if we are the whānau of five million, I've been calling it, then we're going to take the precautions necessary to keep everybody safe. I just think there's part of it where there's the national psyche where people are thinking, I just want to be set free a little bit. That last bit that Fenner talked about, we're seeing relationships challenged, there are counsellors mm. being called on. All of those services need to be available to people so that they can get through these next steps. Fran, how have you rated the opposition's response to this outbreak? Five. I think um, they have spread misinformation. I don't think that was their role at all. I was actually quite pleased to see Shane Retty 
uh, emerged this week, uh, very sound in his comments, um, very experienced uh, medic. Uh, I think we need more of that. I mean, you know, the opposition has really been quite quite awful with the undermining, for instance, Michelle Bowe. You, you can't just wash that away. I mean, all that happened. And I think Judith Collins is unfortunately coming off, um, you know, pretty heavy wicket, frankly, um, and it's not necessarily her fault, but collectively, uh, National needs to look at itself. Okay, we will pause there and return to our panel after the break. And then, the Australian state of Victoria has been battling to control the coronavirus resurgence for weeks, so what can we learn from that experience? Hokimai, you're back with Q&A and our panel, Afisal Collins and Fran O'Sullivan. Kia ora kōrua. Um, Afisal, we've heard from both uh, Judith Collins and Chris Hipkins this morning that Labor and National would continue with an elimination strategy. Do you think it's feasible that every time we have a COVID-19 outbreak, keeping in mind we have no idea really with any surety when a vaccine will be available, that we keep on going into a lockdown? And that's the measure we've got to answer. Look, if you look at the Sweden example that the minister referred to, they've got some major challenges over there with almost 6,000 people dying. I don't think we're going to last through going through to lockdown each time we have an outbreak. And so we've got to get that measure right. But as I said earlier, we're at war with this virus. And it's important that we understand that the immediate answer on one side, on one hand, is not just trade and getting businesses up. We've got to get the health professionals who wrote a letter mm. uh, this week to politicians saying don't politicise this argument. We've got to get the balance right. No, we're not going to be able to go into lockdown every time. And we're starting to feel that too, because there's a side to our society, which is people going online attacking a South Auckland family, which of no fault of their own, have contracted coronavirus. Yeah, what do we do then if we don't if we don't go into a lockdown every time there's an outbreak of Fessel? Yeah, well, you know, Sir David Keig was saying that he spoke with the, his Hong Kong counterpart and the health officials mm. are saying that it's important you've got face coverings, we've got to test better, we've got to increase testing. Look, we saw testing stations close. We've now pop-up testing stations are going up in the very places where we had original testing stations like in Otara and Mangere. Mm. We've got to make sure that we're encouraging the scientists and our research institutions to chase this vaccine as hard and as fast as possible. Yeah, Fran, you know, David Seymour, acts leader, says the elimination and lockdown procedure system doesn't work. What do you think? Well, I think it does work. Um, yes, we have had a flare-up, do do, but do we want to be like Spain? Do we want to be like New York? I mean, you know, frankly, I would rather that we opted to be like Singapore, like South Korea and like Taiwan, who when, you know, a breakdown does, uh, lock, sorry, a um, outbreak does occur, um, and it is also a breakdown, that they actually do chase it hard, but also they use absolutely advanced technologies. I mean, the minister himself, isn't using the app. I mean, what you want to do is have technologies which actually can tell you uh, immediately um, who's been in contact with who in an anonymized um, mm. fashion. And there are those technologies out there. As I say, learn from best in class. We've got to step up. We've got to get over um, nonsense about privacy. And we actually have to go hard and uh, do the best we can. I think it's going to become endemic worldwide. And we do have to learn how to live with this virus, but we're not there yet. We do need to look at how particular industries can work safely, um, even at calf pace, um, mm. during particular lockdowns. For instance, why not the butcher, along with the greengrocer, next to the corner store, 
in a local area instead of people having to go out to supermarkets across town. All this sort of stuff. You know, there's, there needs to be a discussion around that. Fran, from a business perspective, who do you think is going to be hardest hit by this latest lockdown? Well, clearly small business. Hospo, again, which was just getting up off its feet. I, mm. I think tourism, um, you know, obviously New Zealanders aren't getting out around the country. Though I think there are a lot of Aucklanders who got out in that, those 11 hours or so or 12 hours ahead of, um, of lockdown. And I, I actually think that behaviour is appalling because they could have potentially taken the virus elsewhere. I, I think we need to see um, big business, uh, construction, CRL, all these um, types of activities able to continue. Admittedly, it won't be at full production level, uh, but however, we can't, it, we just need to have various modes for what lockdowns we're in. But the big thing is to go hard at the border, uh, to test and trace. And some of the comments the minister made earlier kind of, kind of suggested the optics around just how much um, tests we actually have in this country, how much masks we actually have in this country aren't really that good. And we need to, I would like to see, um, you know, in the COVID stats that go up, that we actually say, what is the national stockpile? Tell us the numbers, because there's an awful lot of obfuscation being happening. All right, finally, Ifeso, we know you have personally been in contact with the South Auckland family at the centre of the latest COVID-19 outbreak. They've been subjected to some pretty horrible comments online. How's, how's the family doing? Yeah, my contact with them has been through a, a, a family friend. I think they're doing all right. They're aware that there's been abuse online, but I've received numbers of emails and uh, texts of people who are saying, look, that's not us. We're better than that, and we want to reach out and support the family. But that just goes to show that there is a level of frustration in the community. There's always going to be the, the crazies who hide behind their keyboards and say nasty things. But I think in the main, the whānau of 5,000 are really getting together and supporting everyone. We just want New Zealand to continue down that path and be supportive of each other. Kia ora kōra. We always... Oh, yeah, Fran, yeah, please. There ...and say that I think the people who are doing that Expose Hatred New Zealand site on Facebook, that should be taken down and they should be charged with defamation. All right. Thank you for your time and insights this morning. We always really appreciate it. That is Afisal Collins, who's an Auckland councillor, and NZME's Head of Business, Fran O'Sullivan, giving you both a virtual elbow bump at the moment. So, how quickly can New Zealand get on top of this COVID outbreak? We're going to go to Melbourne next, where some early mistakes were made in the effort to stamp out their second wave. A Kiwi scientist living in Victoria has some advice for us here. Tēnā koutou, welcome back. The Australian state of Victoria has reported a man in his 20s has died of coronavirus, the youngest Australian to fall victim to COVID-19. There were four new deaths recorded in Victoria's latest daily update, bringing the total number of those killed by the virus there to 293. But healthy experts are hoping the state is past the peak of its second wave. New Zealand-born epidemiologist and public health specialist Professor Tony Blakely took up a job at Melbourne University last year and he is with us from Melbourne this morning. Tēnāk, welcome to Q&A. Did you expect morning, New Zealand would have a second wave of COVID-19 at some point? There was always going to be something at some point. It was unfortunate, sad, whatever word you want to use to see it happen so soon. Um, you know, 102 days. Nevertheless, you've had very good 102 days, and if you can get on top of this, stamp it out, and get back to that way of functioning, 
it's probably better doing that in the long run for both health and economic reasons than it is to be trying to deal in a suppression strategy given New Zealand's got these unique advantages of a thousand kilometres of water in every direction, border controls and the rest of it. Do you think New Zealanders, with the benefit of hindsight, were perhaps a little too complacent? Well, I, we're all saying that, you know, we were too complacent over here in Melbourne when we started our um, mm. second wave. We're abiding by the rules. It's happening everywhere around the world. It's a reality. Um, if uh, David Skeg's interview on Radio New Zealand has got a lot of traction, and if New Zealand was to avoid giving going into lockdown, if there was a next virus incursion, it is going to require a level of non-complacency or vigilance that's far greater than what's happening at the moment, mm. as well as that really good contact tracing. It would probably require wearing masks the whole time, which is not something that I'd previously thought an elimination country would have to do. So if the vigilance is going to be lifted to a level whereby you can deal with outbreaks coming in without going into lockdown, it's going to require a change in cultural norms in New Zealand. Yeah, it's interesting to, you know, both the leader of the opposition and the government at the moment are intent on pursuing an elimination strategy. But isn't the other side to the elimination coin the fact that every time there is a COVID-19 outbreak, we need to go into lockdown? That's the most obvious way of doing it because we know the lockdowns work and it's just pure logic with separating people so you don't get the virus transmitting. I would certainly agree at this point in time that a lockdown is the most obvious way to mm. deal with the virus incursion. How long it needs to go at stage three, for example, in Auckland is moot. But to try and reduce the degree of the lockdown and the length of the lockdown for the next virus incursion, the contact tracing needs to be par excellence. So we've seen this with simulation studies and also comparing places around the world. The quicker you find your first person, the quicker you then mm. find their context, the quicker you find the context, the context. At the same time, the testing, that testing's got to happen really rapidly, result back, result back so fast. And that can be done by exceptionally well-trained workforce, but then augmented mm. with things. Well, let's use South Korea as an example, augmented with good app technology, which is proving difficult for most countries. Harder than I thought it would be to get a decent app, but decent app technology. And then South Korea goes an extra couple of steps whereby they'll also use your visa records and they'll also use CCTV. And you've also got a population that's probably a little bit more compliant to being told what to do. So these are challenging uh, situations for a country like New Zealand that has achieved elimination as to how you do it. How different is New Zealand's second outbreak from the outbreak in Victoria right now? And what lessons are there for New Zealand from Victoria? Yeah, so the one in Victoria, um, it was happening when there was, there was already or still low ground sort of level transmission happening. So it wasn't as obvious when it started, whereas the one in New Zealand started in a zero base, if you like, so it was obvious. So that's the first difference. The next difference with the Victoria one is it went out uh, through a night staff person to the security guards and into a inner part of Melbourne, which has mm. got a high degree of migrant communities and all that sort of stuff. Lots of families at a time of year for that particular cultural group where they were doing some meeting up, which they shouldn't have been doing, but they were, and it just went full with some super spreaders. So that's a difference with what I've seen in the Auckland one. It looks like the Auckland one is well contained. The next difference was that we then we weren't as aggressive as New Zealand because we weren't well, we were following a 
elimination slash suppression strategy. It was all a bit bizarre, really. But anyway, we weren't as aggressive as what New Zealand's done. So New Zealand's gone hard into stage three in Auckland and stage two in the rest of the country. Whereas Melbourne, we tried to, and I support at the time, although I think in retrospect it was a mistake. We put, you know, these controls, then 10 postcodes, 12 postcodes. If we were going to get ahead of it in Melbourne, we should have just gone straight for lock uh, stage three lockdown in the entire Melbourne mm. area. So we've done things more slowly, and that's not necessarily wrong, as we were learning at the time, and also there was this idea of a more of a suppression rather than elimination. So quite a lot of differences there. There's still no source for this cluster in New Zealand. Um, where do you think it might have come from? I mean, there, there were some suggestions that it could have come through on a surface uh, for products mm. that were being kept in a cool store. Is a surface transmission seriously likely, or do you think it's likely to have come from elsewhere? Okay, I think it's unlikely still, although as time goes on, you do wonder. So the fact that it looks like you've got your arms around this outbreak so quickly coming from the Amicold uh, site, given that you've got your arms around it so quickly, it does make you wonder whether it's coming for a surface there. Because if, mm. if it had been transferred to those workers who then generated an outbreak, well, where are the upstream cases? They don't mm. appear to be happening. But I still think it's unlikely, but I'm, I'm not going to say it's impossible. And if, and I want to under, underscore if in what I'm saying now, if it did come in through on a surface or in frozen goods, that's a pretty big problem for the elimination strategy if mm. the virus can get in like that. Mm. That all said, I still think it's unlikely. I still think it's probably coming through some border incursion. And let's hypothesize here. Something's happened at the border. It's gone straight somehow to one of these workers in the Amicold uh, factory. And then it started the classic outbreak there. But you still haven't found how it got through yeah. from the border. Um, with the scrutiny that has been applied um, as a result of this outbreak. It has been revealed uh, that workers in the front line of our quarantine facility haven't been regularly tested. What do you make of that? Yes, I've been following that discussion. I think it was a big call, it was David Skegg again, uh, to say that they should have all been tested frequently. It seemed to me quite a big ask, but maybe well, why, why is if that? that's what's... Well, if you get, I'm assuming what people are asking for is that this entire workforce is tested, say, once a week. And I mean, I think, is what, that what unreasonable is if, we, if, we, uh, well, if we're prepared our, to our, shut down our, the entire country? <laughs> well, this is it. So you may be right. So I'm demonstrating my evolution mm. of thought here, Jack. So if there's six or 10,000 people in the border workforce, something like that, then testing them every week is possible. That would take up a lot of the testing resource. But maybe that is what is necessary. But I think the first thing to do is work out how this outbreak got in. Because if mm. it did get in through the frozen food, which I'm still, I want to emphasize, I think is unlikely. But if it got in through the frozen food, then that changes the weighting, if you like, to that strategy. If it did get in through the um, border workforce, then perhaps testing them every week. Mm. The other thing that I've been watching with interest is I'm assuming they're doing the PCR testing, that's the nasal swab to find the active infection at the moment. But given that it may have come in two or three weeks ago, I'm assuming they're also doing serology testing to see which um, members of the uh, border workforce have actually been exposed in the past. Mm. But if you were doing regular testing on a weekly basis, then you'd be doing the PCR testing. Remember, the PCR testing's not perfect. This virus is so clever. Mm. You know, about 20% of people who've actually got the infection will still test negative because they're early in the phase of the infection or they're just a bit later in the stage of the infection and, the, and it's not 
picking it up or there's a mistake mm. in the way the test is done. So even with a testing strategy like that, you would probably have to account for the fact that 20% of your truly infected people may be missed, 10 or 20%, something right. like that. So nothing's perfect. This virus is very clever. Professor Tony Blakely, it is so good to speak. We really appreciate your expertise. Thanks for coming on Q&A. Good morning. Yep. Plenty of feedback coming in this morning on whether or not the election should be delayed. Lisa Coco writes on Facebook, no, it shouldn't be. There is no reason at this stage to delay it. Wear a mask, gloves and wash your hands. Dave Desnap says maintaining democracy is paramount and this COVID outbreak has put paid to a fair and equitable campaign. Paula Stevenson thinks it should be delayed. She says COVID is distracting from real politics. Dr Jennifer Lees Marshman asks on Twitter, what is more democratic? Giving parties more chance to market, design and communicate their new products or giving voters their right to express themselves sooner rather than later? Also on Twitter, if you can line up at Countdown and a bottle store, you can line up at a polling booth. We will continue the conversation and the debate online. Kuomotu, that's Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching. And now, mihi kia koutou ia koutou pānui. Thank you for your contributions. Thanks to the Q&A team. Marae is next. Hey tērā wiki. We'll see you next Sunday at 9 o'clock. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.